welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping on Thursday, April 1st at 10.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined via video conference by Alice Miranda Olstein of Politico. Good morning. Rachel Kors of Stat News. Hi, Julie. And Kimberly Leonard of Business Insider. Hi, everyone. Later in this episode, we will have our Bill of the Month interview with KHN's Lauren Weber. This month's bill isn't as big as some of the others we've spotlighted, but it is no less outrageous. But first, the news. Uh, No Supreme Court decision on the Affordable Care Act again today. We're taping a little late just in case that happened, but we will have to wait. Uh, And Congress is out this week, but there still is a lot of news coming from Capitol Hill. First, it appears Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has a plan that would let Democrats do multiple budget reconciliation bills from the same budget resolution. Normally, you get one spending bill and one tax bill per budget resolution, and that's it. Now, I know this sounds really, really arcane, but in practice, it could mean that Democrats could do a whole lot more with just their 50 votes. How big a deal is this potentially, and are there pitfalls? I think potentially is the key word because we don't yet know if they can actually do this. And so the legislative strategy will have to flow from understanding how many trains they can have leaving the station. Because if just a second massive reconciliation package is possible, there's just going to be a ton of fighting for things to get in that package that could stretch all the way through the summer and into the fall. Of course, If people are banking on there being a third bill, they might try to save some stuff, but that's obviously risky because it could just get left behind entirely. You know, there's all this fight about the filibuster. I mean, it's certainly an end run around the filibuster. Obviously, if you're doing budget reconciliation, there's still lots of things you can't do because of the budget rules. But if you can have multiple bills, there's still lots of things that you can do. And I expect that Democrats will want to do them, right? It's interesting to think about kind of how we've seen the Biden administration roll um, his next legislative push out because we do have the first like infrastructure package and there are some health elements of it. But I think the more like health coverage aspects, the drug pricing, that's going to be in the second American family plan. So it is important to think about how they're going to package these things together. That all depends on kind of how many reconciliation bills they have available to them. And we should point out, because I've heard people get this wrong, that you can have one spending, and when we're talking about healthcare, we're talking about usually a spending reconciliation bill per budget resolution. But the one they just did is for the budget resolution that Congress was supposed to do and didn't do last year. So they can still do this year's budget resolution, which is due in April, to do another reconciliation bill, which is what this whole infrastructure package is for. And then next year, before the midterms, they can do another budget resolution, or they're supposed to do another budget resolution. Even if this whole idea of doing multiple bills off of one resolution doesn't happen, they still have two more budget resolutions between now and the midterms from which they can do big reconciliation packages. But we are starting to hear about some of the the health plans, right? I know uh, Bernie Sanders, who's now the chairman of the Senate Budget Committee, uh, is talking about letting Medicare negotiate the price of drugs, uh, adding benefits that Medicare doesn't currently have, like vision and hearing and dental, uh, and lowering even the Medicare eligibility age, although I'm wondering whether you can actually do that in a reconciliation bill. Are Are those sort of the big things or am I missing stuff? 
A couple more. Uh, Speaker Pelosi was talking about the drug pricing piece last week, but what she was saying was that they would actually use the savings from allowing uh, Medicare to uh, negotiate drug prices to pay for expansions in the Affordable Care Act that were passed as part of the stimulus that President Biden signed into law back in March. To make those permanent. Exactly, exactly. So that would be used to pay for health insurance to become less expensive for people who buy coverage on the ACA marketplaces. Um, she, Although she said that she wanted a public option, she ended up saying, well, I don't really see how we get that done. So I would say that really diminished the likelihood that this is something that would eventually end up being included in whatever infrastructure or, or personal infrastructure bills they end up um, settling on. This is an instance where we need to watch what lawmakers do, not just what they say. And I think that the recent energy and commerce hearing where they took up a bunch of bills, public option was not among them. I think we need to look at things like that to really see what has an actual likelihood, because they're still waiting to hear Biden's plan for the so-called human infrastructure piece of all of this. And that's going to include a lot of health policy. But in the meantime, the committees are starting to do the legislative groundwork to get ready for things to be ready to get into the package. And I think that's what we need to watch more than press conferences and Bernie's going to say what Bernie's going to say. He's been saying the same thing for decades. We know what he wants. <laughs> and so I think really watching the granular committee moves is is where the future lies. I'm just curious if I remember correctly when the House Democrats did their drug bill, I think it was the end of 2018, they used the savings and there are savings when Medicare negotiates drug prices. They use the savings to add new benefits to Medicare. And now we're talking about using the savings to make permanent the expansion of the ACA. I mean, are we setting up sort of a fight for how to use potential savings from drug benefits, from drug price changes? Well, House Democrats also ended up passing that same drug bill last year in the middle of the pandemic that would have funded the ACA expansions. Yeah, it was sort of, um, you know, something they had done, you know, over the summer. When I was watching all of that, like Alice was saying, here they were really laying the groundwork for what they intended to do, I think. Um, with the public option, they have so much more that they have to figure out. If you talk to different Democrats, they all have a very different picture of what they think a public option should look like. There are some that say, it should go through Medicare Advantage, and that is all that they will agree to. Uh, progressives say no. They want to make sure that it goes through to traditional Medicare, that it's something that the government runs, and that that's how people should enroll. And others view the public option as lowering Medicare's eligibility. So all that divisiveness creates an impediment to consensus and to getting something passed. And when you have a really tiny majority and unlikely to have a lot of Republican support. But meanwhile, while Democrats in Washington uh, are moving to expand federal health programs in whatever way they can come to some agreement on, that is not what's going on in Republican-controlled states. In Missouri, where last summer voters passed ballot measure to expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, the Republican-controlled legislature is working to block the state share of the money that would make that happen. This isn't the first time Republican state officials have tried to block voters' desire to expand Medicaid. In Maine, the Republican governor, the former Republican governor, blocked expansion for more than a year. Expansion only happened after he left office and was replaced by a Democratic governor. Meanwhile, Wyoming looked like it maybe was going to join the other 38 states that have expanded Medicaid, particularly after the COVID relief bill offered yet another financial incentive for those states, except 
not so fast. The expansion bill passed the state house last week, but it got voted down in a Senate committee yesterday. I actually watched part of the hearing. It does not look like these people are about to change their minds. How hard is it to get these last dozen states actually in? The fewer we get down to, the harder it's going to be because as we've discussed many times on the show, a lot of this is rooted in ideological opposition and it doesn't matter how much the federal government sweetens the pot. They're not interested. Um, They don't want an expansion of government insurance. As we were discussing earlier, they also don't trust the federal government to follow through with the funding incentives that are promised. Although, as we know, (laughs) the federal government, uh, once you give a benefit, it's a lot politically harder to take it away. Um, So I think that we've already gotten all the low-hanging fruit states. (laughs) They've already got moved to do this. And the fewer we get down to at the end, looking at Texas and Florida, obviously, (laughs) the harder harder it's going to be. Yeah, I was I was struck watching the debate that it wasn't even so much that they thought it was a bad expanding Medicaid was a bad idea or it wasn't necessary or that it wouldn't help people, but that they really seem to be just distrustful of the idea that the money would continue to flow. They're terrified. It's like we're going to do this and then the federal government's going to pull back and we're going to be left holding the bag. Although the irony is that these are Republicans saying federal government's going to pull back and leave us holding the bag when what they want is to have more Republicans in office in Washington. I still I'm still wrapping my head around that one. That's fair. I feel like this kind of illustrates um, the challenge that I think the Biden administration faces in looking at, you know, the people who actually fall in the gap here in these um, non-expansion states. And I think they tried this policy solution, didn't get a whole lot of uptake right away. So I'll just be curious to see, you know, if they try something different um, to try and get these people some sort of coverage moving forward. Yeah, there's still how what like a million and a half people in that gap that they don't earn enough to be eligible for ACA subsidies, but they earn too much in their states to qualify for Medicaid. So there's obviously a lot of the pandemic programs they would be eligible for. But as we've mentioned, even just now, those are temporary. So not not a long term solution. Well, it's interesting, though, because one of the main proposals to target that population other than Medicaid expansion is a public option, including some lawmakers are pushing public option models that would automatically enroll people in the Medicaid gap. But as we've discussed, that doesn't seem to be going anywhere fast. Yeah, these people are sort of still out there waiting. All right. Well, uh, the Supreme Court did not decide the ACA case today, but this week it did agree to take an abortion case out of Kentucky, although This doesn't really seem like one that would likely threaten Roe v. Wade, at least not directly. Alice, what's this case about? So it's it's interesting. It's a case out of Kentucky, and it basically is centering on whether the attorney general can challenge a court's decision about the state's abortion ban, even when the governor of the state is not interested in doing that. And this speaks to the shift of power we've seen in Kentucky with a Democratic governor uh, winning after uh, several years of Republican control and that really changing the game in terms of the state's position in a bunch of court cases, including on abortion. And so this is whether the attorney general can kind of go it alone, even when the rest of the state is not behind him. But they're not taking up the question of whether the abortion ban itself 
is constitutional or not. And we should point out that the abortion ban in in this case is a ban on D&E abortions, which is the most common second trimester uh, abortion method used in the United States. And there's a lot of states that have passed these D&E bans. And until now, they've all been struck down because they would violate you know what? What what's left of Roe v. Wade? That this would that 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 banning the most common procedure is considered an undue burden, even by conservative judges, at least for now. Eventually, one of these will get to the to the Supreme Court on its merits, right? But this isn't it, right? And so the the most this case could potentially do is allow more elected officials in different states to on their own weigh in on these abortion litigation issues without the rest of the state behind them so we could see more of that in the future depending on how the supreme court handles it it could also just be a vehicle for some of the justices to share some of their views on abortion. We know uh, folks like Clarence Thomas never miss an opportunity to do that. And so it could provide some insight into what they will do in the future. But this isn't a case that will really set precedent for abortion in general. And again, this is a case that they've accepted for next term. So we won't get we won't even see a decision on this until 2022. All right. Well, in the meantime, we need to talk about COVID, which is not only still here, but the nation seems well on its way to a fourth wave. There was more good news on the vaccine front this week in real world conditions. The Pfizer and Moderna vaccines really are 90% effective. And in a clinical trial of young teens, the Pfizer shot was 100% effective in preventing infection. Meanwhile, according to my colleagues at the Kaiser Family Foundation, vaccine hesitancy continues to shrink, particularly among African Americans, although still 30% of Republicans and white evangelical Christians say they don't plan to get the shot. And now President Biden has upped his promise from getting 100 million shots in arms in his first 100 days to 200 million in that same time. Are we turning a corner here finally on vaccinations? I'm seeing a lot of eligible folks still unable to get appointments in a lot of places. I think Massachusetts is the one where I'm seeing sort of the most unhappy people. I think there's a lot of encouraging news, certainly, but I think we have seen, especially in the past week, a change in tone from some members of the Biden administration and just kind of framing how urgent this race to get vaccines in arms is because of the variants that we see, if there's some, you know, case increases that are coming. So certainly there are encouraging signs here, but I think the Biden administration is kind of trying to find that balance of how do you highlight the successes of this rollout while still um, ensuring that the social distancing measures for all those people who can't can't get vaccines yet, um, stay in place long enough to save lives. Yeah, the, the begging to please put the the uh, the mask mandates back for what I think it's nine nineteen states that have abandoned their mask mandates. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing that as much as the Biden administration puts out guidance about how to make sure that you know, hey, we're in the home stretch here, make sure that yes, we're getting people vaccinated, but we're not out of the woods yet. You see a lot of states that are go ahead and loosening a lot of the restrictions that they have. And so they're definitely concerned that uh, the pace of vaccines won't be able to keep up with the surge that's happening. And so, um, you know, it's it, I think it also is going to be about getting across to people that, you know, after you've had the vaccine, you're still not done. You have to wait until you've had the, the booster shot and then you have a couple of weeks still to make sure that you've developed that immunity. So, um, you know, getting all that information across to people is going to be really important. And in fact, I believe the administration has just launched a, a major um, vaccination campaign um, today with a lot of different community groups um, and, you know, religious organizations and athletic groups and things like that to really try to encourage people to to get vaccinated. 
and try. I notice they're trying to get the vaccine out to, you know, uh, to individual, you know, family doctors and and pra- practitioners, so people don't, you know, on the one hand, it's it's easier. You can do a lot of people at these mass vaccine sites, but there's a lot of people who would much rather just go to their own doctor. So I think there's finally enough to to actually start to get it out. I mean, I, I imagine that will help with some of the hesitancy, right? Is if people can just go to their own doctor's office to get a shot. Yeah, I've talked to a lot of people who have done public health campaigns in the past, and they say, look, people listen to people that they trust, their friends, their doctor, clergy members. And so the more that you can have people access what they need, you know, through those mechanisms, the the better off you'll be. And I've also heard from people who feel a lot safer going to their doctor's office than being around a lot of people at a mass vaccination site or waiting in line inside a grocery store that has a pharmacy. So um, having that available makes people a lot more comfortable. You know, they don't want to risk any exposure while they finally get out and are able to get that vaccine. Yes, that was that's been my complaint all along. It's like I don't want to go hang around in the back of my local CVS for half an hour. Or, or more. Um, the next big debate is likely to be over vaccine passports, aka proof that you've been vaccinated. Of course, proof of vaccination is hardly anything new. It's required for children entering public school. It's been required for travel to some countries for decades. But there are concerns that this will lead to vaccine haves and have nots as things start to reopen. Is it possible to have a substantive debate about this or will it too become hopelessly politicized, which it seems well on its way to being? Yeah, I think it's definitely on its way way to being politicized as we see kind of the rhetoric around it from, you know, some members of Congress, some governors. Um, and I think there are concerns um, on the health equity side as well that I think you were alluding to, Julie, that um, my colleagues and I were talking about the other day that, you know, if there are hesitancy or there are barriers, um, language barriers, that sort of thing in certain communities, then that excludes them from, you know, whatever activities, you know, the passports might be like required or suggested for. So I think it is a land. It's a really difficult situation for um, the Biden administration to navigate. And I think they're trying to walk that line where they aren't developing it themselves, but they're setting standards for accessibility. And I think it's just very difficult. And I think they recognize the challenge there. And so, I think it'll be something that certainly is politicized. And I think the Biden administration so far seems like they're trying to stay out of it and just not take ownership of it. Um, We should point out, I mean, that the the idea of, you know, sort of proof of vaccination, some kind of proof of vaccination is not being pushed by the government. It's being pushed by owners of sports stadiums and movie theaters and places where people congregate and airlines. I mean, you know, that businesses want to make sure that people are not exposing other people to the virus if there's the potential for them not to. That's kind of where we are. Uh, I mean, it's a liability thing as much as anything else. And I think the Biden administration seems to want to make sure that there aren't, you know, a million different kinds. This doesn't become electronic medical records where everybody has a separate one and nobody can use it. Um, although I would point out that the, the the George W. Bush administration tried desperately to coordinate electronic medical records and proved unable to. <laughs> Maybe this will be a little bit easier than that. But I can just see, you know, if on the one hand that you're right, they don't want to take they don't want to sort of take leadership or take possession of it because there's already the pushback from libertarians and conservatives. But they also don't want it to become this free for all. I mean, is there is there someone else that they could farm this out to to do? 
I guess we'll have to ask one of our tech people at some point. All right. Well, finally this week, and Rachel, I am glad you're here for this. I am calling this topic, Have Hospitals Overplayed Their Hand? Uh, We discussed your story a couple of weeks ago about how the hospital industry is flying high in Washington right now, thanks to lots of sympathetic coverage and the perception of them as heroes, which they mostly have been the past year. Now there's a new report from the Office of the Inspector General at HHS detailing how hospitals are still very much in need with burnt out staff still taking hits from canceled elective procedures and concerns about their ability to provide mental health care, the exacerbation of health inequities, and particularly even more stress on rural facilities. But at the same time, we're seeing stories about hospitals charging outlandish fees for COVID tests, reductions in charity care, and as you'll hear in a minute in our Bill of the Month interview, adding on charges because they can. Rachel, I'm going to start with you. At some point, is there going to be some backlash against hospitals or at least some lessening of their metaphorical halo they have right now? Yeah, well, I think we've already seen that kind of start to play out. I mean, in December, hospitals had asked for $35 billion and they got $3 billion at the end. And it was, as we look at, you know, President Biden's package, hospitals weren't happy. They didn't get a whole lot of money. And the money that they did get was $8.5 billion specifically targeted for rural providers, which I think the OIG report um, highlighted as well, that they were the hardest hit. And I think lawmakers are running to this challenge as well of how do we talk about the hospital industry when there's these, you know, have and have nots, and there always have been, of hospitals that are making these huge profits and are, you know, treating more commercially insured patients and, you know, the safety net um, and rural facilities that are struggling. And I think they've come to the point where I think they're trying to make these decisions and these discernments. I mean, HHS still hasn't given out um, quite a bit of the money that they have to providers. They're trying to make sure they have their accounting straight and um, make sure they're following all the laws as to how um, which hospitals should be getting the money and make try, they're trying to make it more fair. And Congress has put more guardrails around the money to make that happen. But I think there are some questions about, you know, these huge systems that have posted really strong financial returns and how to make sure that any future aid is targeted to where it's really needed. And there are some s- systems and standalone hospitals that are certainly in need. And I think the OIG report did um, just kind of highlight that again as well. I mean, the the hospital industry has traditionally been, you know, incredibly powerful in Washington, simply because of the fact that there is basically a hospital in every congressional district with the difficulties, I guess, in in rural areas. It's possible that there's a, a district without a hospital, but still unlikely. And in most places, the hospital is either the biggest or one of the biggest employers. So they, I mean, they have clout simply because of of what they do and what they are. Obviously, they would not like a public option because that would pay them some sort of Medicare rate, either Medicare or Medicare plus something and not as much as commercial rates. And that would be a problem for them. I'm wondering whether that plays into any of the sort of discussion about the public option that seems not not happening anyway, or, you know, what, what is sort of what is the future of hospital lobbying for the rest of the year? I feel like one interesting note from the last week is that, you know, hospitals weren't able to get like a Medicare pay bump passed in reconciliation just because of how the legislation was structured. But they actually got it through Congress on a bipartisan basis. I think there were only two no votes to give them more money through the end of the year. Like, and I think that is just a signal of, you know, how that much... Was, this was canceling the sequester, right? Um, canceling the suspension this... of the sequester. Right, right yeah, that's just right. Extending, yeah. Yes. extending the pay bump longer is how, how I've been describing right. it because um, it gets kind of convoluted. Um but I and I certainly think they will be weighing in on um, any coverage debates. You know, they very much are in uh, in favor of the policy, like Kimberly was talking about earlier, on just you know making 
healthcare more affordable, but again, they are opposed to like lowering Medicare eligibility age or some of these more aggressive reforms. Affordable as long as it doesn't cut into their profits. Exactly. That's, you know, and, and, and every side feels this way. But so, you know, if, if, they're, if we're going to get a handle on healthcare costs, someone will take a hit. Drug companies, hospitals, insurance companies. I think for hospitals, it's always been, you know, they haven't really been the boogeyman. Like if you listen to the way that Democrats talk about the need to reform the healthcare system, they're very comfortable going after pharmaceutical companies. They're very comfortable attacking insurance companies. But you don't hear them talk about hospitals. And that's where a lot of our healthcare spending is. So I do think it's going to continue to be difficult for them to clamp down on the hospital industry. I, I also noticed that the American Hospital Association put out a list of items that they would like to see in the infrastructure package, too. So it'll be really interesting to see whether they get anything on that uh, wish list. All right. Well, as advertised, now we will play uh, my Bill of the Month interview with KHN's Lauren Weber about hospital billing. And then we will come back and do our extra credits. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast my KHN colleague, Lauren Weber, who wrote the latest KHN NPR Bill of the Month and who joined us from our Midwest Bureau in St. Louis. Welcome, Lauren. Thanks for having me. Tell us about this month's patient. Well, this one is is a sad case. I spoke with a woman, Kyung Hee Lee. She lives just outside of Cleveland in Ohio. And she had worked as a dry cleaner owner for several, several years and is still working as a seamstress. Due to all that work with her hands, she has arthritis. So she gets steroid injections into two of her fingers and she goes about once a year or so. And usually it's about $30. And she's been doing this for some time, right? For some time, for some time. You know, essentially she'll wait until the pain gets too bad and then she'll eventually decide to go to the doctor's office and do so. And every time she had gone in the past, it was about $30. So she goes to the doctor and has the, sees the same doctor, right? Has the same injection, but the bill's not the same. Yes, she noticed this past summer, she went to the same doctor, uh, but the uh, office building where she was going, the doctor's office had moved up a floor and when it moved up a floor, the hospital reclassified it as a hospital-based setting, which allowed them to tack on what's called a facility fee, which is essentially a fancy term for a room rental fee, honestly. Um, and it allows hospitals to really charge you for essentially the other care that they offer, which is 24-7 care or other licensing care. But just to be clear, this was not a hospital. This was a office building with doctors in it, right? That's exactly right. It was her normal office building. The the doctor's practice had literally moved up one floor, uh, but because they renamed it as a hospital-based setting, they were then allowed to attach this facility fee. And that made her bill 10 times more expensive. So how much bigger was the bill? So the bill itself was three times larger than it had been ever in the past. And her personal responsibility in it was 10 times larger. So she went from paying about $30 to paying $300, which is a lot for someone who's on Social Security supplemented income. You know, that was a, that was a big sticker shock for her considering she had gone years just paying $30 to get these shots to make her hands feel better. So hospitals can just do this, reclassify the exact same service and hike the prices? Yes, that's exactly right, Julie. I, essentially, that is the name of the game of the facility fee. As one expert said to me, 
It's essentially like getting on an airplane, paying $300, and then landing and being told you owe $3,000 for the gas and for the pilot's time. That's essentially what a facility fee is. And you have no way of knowing until you get the bill. So what eventually happened with the bill? So sadly, eventually what happened, uh, Kyung-hee Lee ended up getting um, some final notices. She she tried to take it to the hospital to protest. They said, too bad, essentially. Her daughter um, ended up paying it for her because she is on Social Security and $300 is a lot of money for her. But her daughter, Esther, told me she's very concerned that because now Miss Lee knows that it was so much more expensive to get these shots that she may not get them in the future, meaning that her hands may hurt so much more because she's afraid to access that medical care. So what's the takeaway here? Is there some way to avoid these facility fees? The best way to do so is to call ahead and ask, you know, has my physician practice been acquired by a hospital? In the era of consolidation where physicians practices are being bought up left and right, you could go to the same physician like Ms. Lee did and then come back the next year and you would have a facility fee tacked on. So definitely call ahead. Um, There is model legislation across several states that is looking to crack down on this practice, but by no means is there anything substantial or national quite yet. So basically just buyer beware. Essentially buyer beware. All right. I'm afraid that's the message of most of our bills of the month, but at least people will be armed with more information. Lauren Weber, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, we are back and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it, we will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash what the health. Kim, why don't you go first this week? Sure. I picked one of mine at Insider and the headline is people flocked to Florida and Texas for a lower cost of living during the pandemic. They were shocked when their health care got way more expensive. And what I dive into here is um, how people are moving from states that have Medicaid expansion into states that do not. A lot of people assume that Medicaid expansion is the same from state to state. It obviously isn't. We talked about earlier in this podcast that there are 12 holdout states still. And, um, you know, people are shocked to learn that they will not be able to get coverage. One individual from the story had ended up moving back to the expansion state. Another person told me that she was unable to work because she couldn't get the medication that she needed to manage her illnesses. And so um, she got kind of caught in this cycle of being unable to really thrive in, in her new home. The story is behind a paywall, but um, if you're not an insider subscriber, you can get a one month trial for $1. And we're also doing a 50% off sale, only $49 (laughs) for the year, which is a pretty good deal. Okay. Alice. Yes, I chose a uh, piece in The New Yorker by Jill Lepore, How Do Plague Stories End? Basically looking at all of the literature about what we're going through right now, (laughs) a pandemic, and really how different societies grapple with that. Some gain knowledge, some lose knowledge. It's a chance for societies to decide what they want to do differently or to not learn anything from it and to just keep making the same mistakes again. So as a former English major, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> and I love Jill Lepore. Um, Rachel. Um, okay, so mine is titled um, The Particular Torment of Dying Now from COVID-19, um, which was written by my colleague um, Drew Joseph at STAT. It was just really moving for me to sit down and read this story, um, which just really spotlights these heartbreaking stories of people who've lost loved ones now in the pandemic when, you know, it's it feels so close. You know, some people have gotten vaccines even within households and others haven't. I think there's a special kind of tragedy of people who are still dying of COVID-19 now. So I think it just helped me think 
about kind of the stakes of the choices that we're all facing in these next couple of months as we, um, you know, just kind of wait for wait for vaccines and kind of wait for the light at the end of the tunnel. And so, yeah, I think that was just really moving and something that I would recommend people read. So mine is from The Atlantic by Olga Kazan. It's called The Vaccine Line is an Illusion. And it's one of several stories I've read about the ethics or lack thereof of vaccine line jumpers. Though this is mostly about younger line jumpers, since in most of the country, older people are finally eligible, um, even if in some places they still can't get appointments. But what struck me is something that I experienced myself, which is that you can be patient, but only until you perceive that other people are line jumping. And then you get crazy wondering if you're being a chump for not line jumping uh, or if everyone else, including your friends and family, are secretly terrible people. And I've come to the conclusion that we are all experiencing more than a little trauma from being cooped up for over a year and need to take a breath. But yeah, we really could and should have done this rollout better. So forgive yourself if you're having unkind thoughts. Um, that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who makes us all sound good, even when we're in different places. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. Alice? At Alice Holstein. Rachel. At Rachel Kors. Kimberly. At Leonard KL. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.